This is What's In with Olaplex. I'm your host, Danielle Frank. Together, we break down all things beauty, health, and wellness and discuss not just what's out, but also what's in. Today, I'm joined with psychologist Dr. Ina Kanievsky to talk about what's in and what's out with social media therapy. We cover everything from who to trust online to the problem with pop psychology. Dr. Ina is a professor of psychology at San Diego Mesa College, and she debunks psychology content for her 1 million followers on TikTok. And if you want to stay on trend, follow us at What's In Podcasts on social media and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you, Ida, for coming on today. Happy to be here, Hans. Thank you for asking me. So, Ina, with your experience, could you tell us a little bit about the kind of work that you are doing? Like, what exactly are you teaching? So, this is sort of a weird place for me to be, especially in social media, with my particular area of expertise and qualifications, because I am in a strictly teaching position. I teach at a community college, which means, which is what I wanted to do. It means we are just teaching. We're not required to do research. Our focus primarily is on knowing psychology and sharing psychology with our students. My doctorate is in experimental psychology, so I'm trained as a researcher. And I've never been a clinical psychologist, and I didn't have really an interest. I did have interest in being a school psychologist, but I accidentally ended up being what I am, and I'm happy with it. But it is my business to know about clinical psychology and to be able to teach about clinical psychology, both the diagnosis and therapy, and to be aware of what's current within that field. And so I constantly emphasize this to my students that we need to always apply our critical thinking to all of the information within the field, just like any other field, because it also is a field that's in flux. It's relatively new. It changes all the time. We learn more. And so things that we believed 50 years ago are certainly we now know not true today. So what is your experience when it comes to what you've seen on social media. I mean, you have this great following and I know that you started up as something kind of serendipitous. You were doing this during the pandemic, right? Yes, I was mostly starting to do it for my students to make content videos, just informational, silly little things to explain concepts for class. And then I wasn't really seeing any of the huge amount of psychology, diagnostic, therapeutic content made by people who shouldn't be doing that until somebody started pointing out to me. Now, I would assume that you probably had a lot of that content coming up on your page. You know, the algorithm is so intuitive with that. So were you finding that you were finding other psychologists or therapists, or it really was just a gamut of different types of people? No, so I was not actually seeing any of the misinformation content. I was just seeing other professionals and like quality professionals, what I consider science-based people. And I was unaware of how much misinformation there was until one of these people pointed out that that was there by responding to it. And then I sort of jumped in by helping. And then people started sending it to me. 
So mostly, weirdly enough, my For You page does not show it to me. It's shown to me by followers and others who tag me. I have to admit, therapy is like one of those things. My mom, during the 1980s, she started going to therapy. It was kind of like that trending thing back in those days. Um, And luckily, you know, it was something that I was raised with as something that was perfectly normal, but there's so much stigma to it now. Do you feel as though that that's still prevalent today? Because I will say with TikTok, seeing everything on there, it's really interesting the conversation that revolves around it. You know, I am starting to feel that with young people, especially, there isn't so much that there is stigma of it, but there is this perception that therapy is impossible to obtain and that it's unaffordable and that most of the therapists, especially like older generation therapists, are not even going to understand you. So there is no point to bother. So it's a very different pushback against professional therapy than there used to be in the past. Do you find that the whole social media therapy thing is a little bit tricky when it comes to navigating all that? Oh, absolutely, because you see things on there that are actual informational things from good quality professionals. And you also see content from people who shouldn't be trying to give people advice or generalize, you know, have you seen stuff like that? I'm not going to lie. I mean, I might get a little bit of my therapy fix in between my... In between my appointments on TikTok, because yes, there are qualified professionals and it's really great when you're able to get really great, valuable information about, like you said, more clinical, really understanding the basis of it. But also there's a lot of creators on there that have gone through life experience. And I think they may be regurgitating things that maybe they have learned along the way, but unfortunately are framing themselves as experts. Yes. One of my first encounters, like one of the first things that I've debunked was from somebody who presents herself as if she's an expert and talks very authoritatively and does not have any qualifications to offer people that kind of advice or diagnostic science or anything like that. And that just happens a lot. (laughs) No, definitely. Definitely. It's a challenge. Now, can you tell me the difference between clinical and experimental psychology? Most of the time when people hear psychologists, and it's the same thing on TikTok, like I constantly have to explain to people that that's, no, I don't have clients. I never had clients. That's not what I do. Most psychologists, most people who will identify as psychologists don't have clients. Most psychologists actually are in academia. So this is a difference between making psychology and using psychology. So a lot of academic psychologists do research. That's what I was trying to do. I just don't do that. And they create, essentially, information about human behavior and human mental processes that we then can apply. And so then there is a subfield of it that's practice of psychology. And it's not just therapy. It's also industrial organizational psychology in businesses. It's sports psychology. It's educational, working with school counseling, etc. So there's many different applications. Clinical is probably about 30 to 40%, depending on how you count. And those are the people who work in direct practice for people with mental health issues. And they are supposed to, and that's the key word, kind of supposed to, apply the science of psychology to their practice 
they don't always necessarily do that, unfortunately. So when it comes to experimental psychology, that is in essence creating a lot of the modalities of handling different issues, let's just say. That's not really what experimental psychology is. And people often think that. I would think, and it seems like that's where you would get your your foundation. Yes, so people tend to focus even when they think about experimental research, they tend to focus on psychology as being something that fixes people. And that's really fundamentally not what psychology is. Psychology fundamentally is a science of human behavior and mental processes. Some of that behavior and some of those mental processes are atypical and problematic for people, and we want to help them and find ways to help them. But in order to understand the abnormal, you need to understand the normal. You need to understand okay. how memory works in general, how executive function works in general, how problem solving works, how moods work, right? And then that's when we can say, okay, this is not how it's supposed to work. So we need to find ways to make it better. So most of the experimental, most of the research psychology works in just understanding how people work. And then some of it is specifically directing this understanding towards resolving problems that people have. And so that's often confusing to people. Not everybody tends to understand that because normally in the everyday life, right, we think more about the problems. Well, I want to chat with you about what's out with TikTok therapy, because there is so much in there. There's probably a lot we could dive into this. Yes. So I would say that the main thing that I would really wish just disappeared altogether is people making definitive statements based on personal experience. I think that's a very valid thing. And I also feel as though (laughs) if I was to contribute to that, I think there's that tendency to watch a lot of different people and then Mm self-diagnose the amount of people that are claiming they are neurodivergent based on TikTok is fascinating to me. So this is actually a little bit complicated because a lot of times when you say this in a social media context, people will push back and say nobody diagnoses just of like one or two TikTok videos. They don't. They diagnose of 10 or 15 because a lot of these videos repeat each other and say the same thing. And then we have this impression that when many people find something relatable, when many people say the same thing, that that's definitely true. Like there was this thing about, oh, if you sleep like this with your hand like that, that's, they call it dinosaur arms. (laughs) Have you seen that? Not only did I see that, but it made me go, what? Like, because I completely do that. Absolutely. Well, congratulations. You're probably autistic, (laughs) according to TikTok. I I mean, and you might be. I don't know. I don't know much about you at this point, Danielle, right? But people will say, oh, now everything makes sense. I sleep on my left side and my hands. This is how people sleep. Left side is actually like scientifically recommended, medically recommended way to sleep for better digestion and not having reflux and all that. So many people sleep on their left side. And when we do, we tend to kind of like sort of curl in, regardless if you are neurodivergent or not. And yes, your hands are going to like go towards your body and be be doing this. 
or be doing this, right? Like you, that's, that's what your hands are going to do. So where do you think these are stemming from? Do you think that there's like some kind of study or something like that where they're taking like a grain of information or kernel of truth and just exploiting it to something much bigger? Sometimes and sometimes not. Sometimes somebody says it and then you see propagation. This is another thing I wish were out. When people open their video by saying, I just learned that. Or I just realized that. And then they say like this platitude that they've just picked up. And usually they picked it up off another video. Yes. And they've accepted it and they repeated it. And these videos tend to go very viral. That's kind of the algorithm problem. And that's really what propagates the belief that that must be true. And if a scientist or researcher or professor tells you otherwise, that's because they are an evil neurotypical member of the establishment. Now, speaking of the whole neurotypical, neurodivergent, and all these terminologies that you know they use on TikTok, I want to also talk about some of the other terms like trauma, gaslighting, triggered, all of these things that a lot of people are using those terminologies. It's become almost a part of everybody's daily vernacular now. Do you think that it is healthy that we're talking about these things? Or do you think that it's more harmful that we might be throwing these around so easily on every single situation? Both, unfortunately. <laughs> and how do we tell them apart? Like, let's say gaslighting, for example. As it happens, just a couple of weeks ago, I was at a psychology conference and I was doing a presentation specifically about memory and gaslighting in today's context. And that's because... Gaslighting, as it is used on the internet and social media today, is not holding to its original meaning anymore. And people are using it in context that does diffuse and potentially causes harm to people who experienced real gaslighting in real environments, real situations. And specifically, the way that it pops up, and it has been really trending upwards, so, I don't know if you know, but in 2022, Miriam Webster declared gaslighting word of the year because the searches for that word went up more than um, 1,700%. Mm -hmm. Think about the magnitude, like how huge that is. And the irony is that that term came from a pop culture reference to a movie, no less. It's like it's making full circle. <laughs> it came from a movie and... It is, in that movie specifically, it is something that has been done to people. It just, the movie just gave it a term, right? So that is a term that is supposed to be applied to a very specific manipulation of somebody to make them doubt reality, to make them doubt that they're sane and uh, basically, like in that movie, drive them crazy. Right? So it's very manipulative. It's very intentional. It's not when your parents tell you that they remember an incident from your childhood differently than you do. Because when it comes to incidents from our childhood, nobody remembers them accurately, not your parents and not you, and you probably less than parents. Because children's memory is really very flexible and very overridable up until you get into like preteens, perhaps. We have lots of data, lots of evidence from research psychology on that. But people believe that if somebody disagrees with them on past events, that they're being 
gaslit that somebody is doing it to them on purpose, even if, no, they really just remember the events differently because we constantly construct our memory. It's never accurate. And that's a really slippery slope. Didn't they, weren't there their research with like policemen when they would ask a bunch of people about a crime that they saw that like there were so many different versions of what they saw, everything from the color of their clothes mm-hmm. to um, what actual events happened. Everybody's recall is slightly different. It's all about perspective. So when we're sitting here saying, oh, I'm being gaslit because I'm not being validated for my memory, it's yeah, a slippery slope because they might be feeling the same thing. They might be thinking you're gaslighting them. Exactly. And they are research is Loftus and Palmer from the 70s originally. And um, Elizabeth Loftus has now actually been gaslit. She's a very prominent memory researcher. And she's done a whole bunch of studies with her laboratory showing how we reconstruct memory and how false memory can be created. But she's getting some vindication recently in neuroscience because, as it turns out, neuroscience brain scans can distinguish between the real memory that's actually been created at the time of the event, false memory, which is something that a person believes happened, So they're not lying, right? They really believe, but didn't really happen like that. And somebody actually making stuff up or lying. So this activates different parts of the brain because the way that these things are stored and how they're coded in the brain are different. Now, we are not quite at the point where we can just give everybody brain scans whenever there is any confusion, obviously. But the reality is that, yes, false memories exist. And false memories are not people lying. Mm. They're just people constructing something and then accepting it as real. And those can be triggered by a lot of things, including, unfortunately, therapy. It is a very trending topic that's on social media right now. I think that currently it has spilled over into mainstream media, no less. Like it is just a part of our dialogue. And it's kind of funny what you were saying about it being written in a dictionary. I keep on thinking of all the different words that we have kind of transformed into what pop culture has created. I'm wondering if they're going to wind up having a term that replaces the actual gaslighting (laughs) eventually. Maybe because it gets diluted, right? And we are trying to sort of push back because you also see dilution of something that are established, basically psychological terms or medical terms, like people will say, oh, I'm just a little OCD about this. No, you're not. You're just particular. (laughs) Or that's with um, um, anybody that says that they were in a relationship or their parents were um, narcissists. Narcissist has been also the word du jour to everything. And it seems like anybody that, I'm not even sure half the time when they sit there and say, I don't know what the qualifier to them is that makes that person a narcissist because they were mean to them. It just seems to be a blanket statement. So narcissism is kind of interesting because in this case, everybody can be a little narcissistic. Like you could measure narcissism as a personality trait. And that's basically selfishness, right? Like how self-focused you are. And people all have that to a certain extent. And we will most often lack in our own self-interest or in the interest of our family or those close to us, which also can be construed as 
for our benefit, right? But when we're talking about narcissism as a condition, as a narcissistic personality disorder, that's a whole another story. And it is a condition. People are not being like that on purpose, right? They become that way or they have predisposition to be that way. It's complicated. It's difficult to study because of how difficult people are to diagnose. And it's a very small proportion of the population. And it's not everybody's mother or everybody's mother-in-law or everybody's ex-husband that's going to be a narcissist just because they acted selfishly or just because they didn't care about your feelings or just because they manipulated you. Now, they might be, but we should not just go about labeling people. That's, that's not a good idea. Okay, so now let's talk about what's in with TikTok therapy, because I do think there is a lot of great benefits to it. Yes. And I think that the biggest benefit that we probably see is, in fact, in people being able to share personal experience and tips and solutions they found for themselves if they are very clear that they've come up with that as a personal experience and this is how they use it. And they can say, well, you can try this, but they're not being prescriptive. So having a community, it's like group therapy, essentially. Group therapy can be very effective. And one reason it's very effective is because you then don't feel like you're the only one with this problem. And you can see how it shows itself in others. So it does give people more comfort with how they're feeling and more answers. I do feel also, at least in my observation, I can't say this for a certainty, But typically men are a little bit more hesitant, if I'm wrong, feel free to call me out, about going into therapy, or at least with my experience. And being able to see it on TikTok, particularly when it's a therapist, a likable person, because normally if they're on there and they're popular, they probably know how to make content, (laughs) Um, that they're personable. It's not scary. It's not a sign of weakness. I think that there's something really, really wonderful about the normalization of therapy and really exposing men in particular, but I think women probably too, how normalized it can be. It's really great. Yes. This exposure zone and this encouragement that people can talk to somebody about their problems, you can find community, you can find support, there are resources that can be shared. All of that, I think, is in general a positive. So if you were looking on TikTok, and let's say if you were, we'll start with professionals, right? Mm -hmm. If you were talking about, there's a whole bunch of content creators, they're professional therapists or clinical or experimental psychologists. What are the earmarks that people should be looking for? Like, what kind of information should they be staying away from? And what are the ones that they should be gravitating to? So to me, like one of the biggest red flags when I'm looking at TikTok therapists is when they are making, likewise, just like regular non-therapist creators, when they're making generalized statements or assumptions about why something may be without support, without knowledge. So for somebody to say, oh, if you have this problem, that means you had childhood trauma, or that means your parents didn't let you express yourself, or that means you had too many siblings, whatever. They don't know anybody they're talking to. That's really honestly unethical for them to be doing. 
and they shouldn't be. So that's that to me, that's a red flag, making assumptions about people like that. So in other words, identifying certain symptoms that might be part of a long list of symptoms that could be a, a diagnosis and basically making a sound, that's it. Like you got that, you got this and that's it. Yes. But what about the other side of the spectrum? Like, are there ones that are raising awareness that might help you kind of steer you to the right place just simply from the information that they're giving? Yes. So I tend to be very much behind people who will be emphasizing, for example, the need for differential diagnosis and need to disentangle things and symptoms and saying how a particular thing can be caused by multiple situations, multiple conditions. We need to know more about you and your life to be able to tell which it is. People who will provide useful tips for a diagnosed condition, if you have it, and how to do it without like basically trying to diagnose people through the screen and make assumptions of them. I actually keep a list of people like that that I trust. I put on my link tree for my followers to use because I'm not a therapist, but I like to be able to provide responsible people. I also am really curious about your thoughts on content creators that are not therapists, but they're giving their it's kind of like you were saying about group therapy. They're being clear that like, this is my life experience. This is what I went through. These are the things that were happening to me. And this is how I overcame it. This is some of the modalities of therapy that I went through with my therapist. I would think that even though you don't necessarily want to recommend somebody to like take on the information of what worked for someone else and assume it's going to work for you. I do think that Sometimes I see people with really great advice and I don't see any harm in it. A lot of times that's exactly it. Like, for example, somebody can say, okay, I have ADHD and I struggle with taking notes in class and I found this system. Or I have difficulty remembering what's in my fridge and I found that putting my vegetables into the drawer is worse than putting them in the door because they die in the drawer. I think it's what we naturally do as society anyways. I think of my son was diagnosed with ADHD when he was very young, but this was back in the days where like they were over-medicating kids. And I was just like, we're not putting that on his record. And we would work with lots of people to kind of figure out things that he can do, you know, scheduling himself, setting alarms, all these things. Now, during all this time, I may have identified as ADHD, but never actually looked into it. So I was incorporating the stuff that was helping benefiting my son into my life, which got me so far um, until I finally got a diagnosis. But I think that it's fascinating. Like those kind of things are really, really helpful. Even if you don't have ADHD, not bad stuff to have in your life. Exactly. A lot of this advice is good for everybody. And uh, it's nice that it's there. So being that a lot of people are on TikTok, social media, and they're searching out this information, a lot of times it's because they might not be able to afford to go to therapy. Maybe they can't get the copay. Maybe they don't have the insurance. Whatever the reason is, I know locally trying to find a therapist is a challenge. So if we're saying that, okay, cautionary when it comes to TikTok, you know, tread lightly on who you're going to follow, 
What other tools do you think at home or on your own, what resources would you suggest to people to be able to get the information and the kind of therapy that people need? So all of psychology essentially has several different professional organizations. There is Association for Psychological Science. There is American Psychological Association. There is psychiatry.org, which is a psychiatrist's official website. So there are many legitimate official, essentially, sources that provide a lot of resources to people that have vetted information from qualified professionals, including advice for how to cope with different conditions and issues. So I would recommend basically starting there and looking there first, looking for resources that are available. But we also have a lot of professionally published workbooks and guides that people can get relatively inexpensively to work on their problems. There is no magic solution, right, to any psychological issues. There is not anything that you're going to just they go like this and, and it's fixed. Even if you start taking medication, it also doesn't fix anything immediately and permanently. So workbooks are always good. But you want to look like who published the workbook and what do they normally do and that they're not just like out there to make a quick buck by self-publishing and selling things. And I would also look at a lot of professionally verified and vetted resources that people put out, including on TikTok and including on social media. And even from non-professionals, again, coping skills, like mechanisms for how to get through your daily life, how to get through college, how to get through work tasks. All of those things can be used and they don't need to be therapies. They don't need to be expensive. I find a lot of times some of those books that are made by motivational speakers, you know, those people that are trying to kind of elevate some aspect of your life, a lot of times the modalities that they're using are coming from therapy, are coming from different forms of therapy. So I don't think it's a big stretch when it comes to that, but I do like to personally research the author and see what exactly that they have in their background, because it does really make a difference. It absolutely does. A lot of times just people take a course or pretend to take a course for how to become a life coach, and then they're suddenly an expert on your life. And that's just not how it necessarily works. So I would actually look at what a person like that puts out. There are some really very good coaches out there that are being very responsible with what they recommend and not stepping out of their territory and potentially suggesting things that can cause people more problems than solutions. So you want to actually look at their content kind of holistically and see what else they're doing, what are they claiming, and if they are prone to putting out a lot of misinformation, then maybe find somebody else. I think it's really hard sometimes finding someone that you can align with, but with just a little bit of research, let's face it, the interwebs is very valuable now. We can look up everything. These are really yes. great resources for us to be able to do our own investigative work. And much like if you had a toothache or a broken arm, we would probably do a little research and make sure that person is a credible person that is working on us. It should be no different for our brains or our emotions. Absolutely. Did you go to like one person and it was immediately the right person? No. Um, I had 
looked at one or two people and and we did a little bit of a touch base to kind of figure out whether or not we were right. What I had learned is for me personally, I wanted to find someone that had training in several different modalities Mm -hmm. because I do feel as though one size should not fit all. And I am a very complicated person, Ina. I believe you. So I wanted to make sure that if they needed to shift gears, hey, this isn't working. That they could shift gears. They could they could try a different modality of therapy with me because um, it is important and there is a difference between that. So I did a lot of research and I found someone wonderful and it was just very fortuitous. But I've also searched because again, my personal belief is that as you're approaching certain big milestones in your life, like my kids graduating high school, they're moving out of the house, all of these different things, moving in with a significant other. It's important to, on the weeks leading up, if you haven't been to therapy in a while, go, because this is traumatic, whether you realize it or not, and they will help you kind of work through it, you know, navigate it all, all the emotions that are attached to it. So it just makes it easier. And then, you know, then you taper off for a little while. So it was a little harder finding it for my kids. I'm not going to lie. Because all of this in therapy, and that's another thing we know from research, the biggest contributor to whether therapy is going to be successful is the connection between the therapist and the client. So if you don't feel comfortable, if you don't feel like this person is a fit, and for kids, it's a very big deal, right? They they don't like this person. They got to feel like they can trust them. And they can't always say why, or they can't relate, or they feel like this person doesn't understand them. Sometimes there is resistance. Oh, I don't want to go to a different person and have to explain everything again. But we have to do that. We have to search before we find. And the same is true when we look at online stuff. Not everything online is for us. We may have to search until we find it. I love that. Ina, this was such a wonderful conversation. I learned so much from you, and I'm so grateful you came on today. Thank you very much that you've asked me. I had a great time talking to you. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'm your host, Danielle Frank. What's In With Olaplex is produced in partnership with Olaplex and Frequency Media. Lizzie Stewart is our producer. Emily Krumberger is our associate producer. Ina Garkusha is our supervising producer. And Michelle Quarry is our executive producer. These episodes are recorded by Dante Hodge and mixed by Matthew Ernest Filler and Claire Bidigari Curtis. Development and strategy by Jessica Olivier, Sara Naz Jababayi, and Sarah Adams. 